If you're able, let me encourage you now to remain standing and open God's Word with me to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, we're going to begin reading in chapter 4, verse 14. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible, that will be on page 1189 this morning. Our sermon text for this morning is Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. But for the sake of continuity and context, we're going to begin reading in chapter 4, verse 14. Book of Hebrews, beginning in chapter 4, verse 14, let me remind us as we hear God's Word read that it is God's Word that we are reading. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of our God. Please be seated. And let us seek the Lord's illumination on his word. Let us pray. Holy Spirit of our God, thank you for breathing out the words of Scripture. Our God, we thank you for providing your word in translation. We thank you that we can hear the word of God in the language of our hearts. And as we have heard it, so we ask that it would deeply and richly penetrate and and ooze into every nook and cranny of our being, that your spirit would take your words and press them into us and form us and reform us, transform us, as we consider your words together this morning. Sanctify us, our God, make us holy in your truth by the power of Christ, for your word is truth. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. I wonder how many of you have one of those friends. Some, some of you are laughing. You're wondering what I mean. Well, 
Those kind of friends can be interesting in a number of ways, but if you ever have one of those friends who likes to ask sort of the off-the-wall questions, try to bring you up short or just to boggle your mind a little bit, anybody have friends like that? Am I the only one? Fair enough. Well, I had, and I still have, he's still a friend of mine, one of those friends who likes to ask peculiar questions. He was actually an an elder of the church I served in Pennsylvania for many years. And one of the questions that he would occasionally ask me, and I remember him mentioning it more than once, he would say, have you ever wondered, Jeremiah, why, why God doesn't send angels to run the church? So why does he send sinful men like us to be pastors and elders? Why doesn't he send angels instead? They don't sin. They could preach the gospel without any errors in what they're saying. Why? Why did he send men? And it's an interesting question, isn't it? Why, why does God delight to use sinners rather than the sinless to run his church? But it's one of those questions that has layers. And actually, after you peel back the top layer and go a little deeper, you realize it's an even more profound question than you first imagined. Because in asking about God's purpose... It also, it also pokes us to ask, well, in using sinners to be leaders of the church, men and um, yes, elders and pastors who have, have sin in their hearts, what does that tell us about the heart of God himself? And as you think about that, then you ask another layer even deeper, what does that tell us about the life and eternity that we are going to live in with God? All sorts of questions that rise out of that question. It's a, it's a multi-layered sort of question. And like that question from my friend, the passage that we're going to look at this morning, Hebrews 5 verses 1 through 10, has layers of questions that arise as we consider it. And as we consider those questions that are going to arise out of this text, we're going to find some answers perhaps to some of the unspoken questions some of you may have had after last week. Last week we looked at verses 14 through 16, of chapter 4. And just to remind you briefly that some of, the, some of the big things we pulled out of that, from verse 14 where it says, let us hold fast our confession, we, we said that what that means is we need to be willing to speak to our hearts the same promises that God speaks over them. And then in verse 16, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, we said, as we give Jesus our fearfulness, he will give us his own boldness. He will share with us his own boldness to approach God. And we concluded last week by saying that our boldness to come to God is not found in ourselves, in our piety, but in Christ, in our priest. It's not found in how well we do, but in who we trust. And as we enter in this morning, I just want to ask you to reflect. You don't have to do this out loud, but I want to ask you, how has that been going over the last week? Those things that we studied and, and said to our hearts and to so one another last week, how's that been going for you this week? Have you been trying to speak over your heart the same promises that God speaks to it? Have you been giving Jesus your fearfulness and finding that he's giving you his boldness? Have you believed these things? And have you activated them? And I think that so often... We hear the gospel, even when we, even when we really hear it, we're really listening, we, we hear the gospel, and then we say in our hearts, yes, but, dot, dot, dot. And there's a part of us that still doubts the goodness and the promises of God. 
Or perhaps you hear the gospel and say, no way, not even Jesus could really know what I've faced. And so then you think, well, my situation doesn't qualify for these promises. My friends, as we dig into verses 1 through 10 of chapter 5 here this morning, I want to challenge you and ask, what if both of those reactions are missing something really important? What if you are missing the bigness and the goodness of Christ? What if Jesus is really bigger and better than you ever imagined? We're going to see that as we look at this text this morning, that Jesus is even better than our best imaginations. But to understand how that comes out of this text, we first have to understand something about the structure of this text, how it's written, how it's organized. And so, kids, if you've got your outlines, that's where we're going to start right now with number one. As we look at the structure of the text, there are a couple things we want to note about the structure of the text. Then we will be in a position to see the questions it's raising, and then finally how it answers those questions with the sympathy of Jesus. So first and foremost, the structure of the text. First thing to note, number one, is that this text, chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, it expands the previous section. There are, in fact, no new commands. Look at it. Right, even you see it, if you're, looking, if you're reading closely, you see this even at the beginning of chapter 5. How does chapter 5 begin? With the word for. And he says, for every high priest. Well, look back at chapter 4, verse 14. What does that say? Since then we have a great high priest. All of chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, is a continuation and it is an expansion upon chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. There are no new commandments given. There were commands given in 4. Verses 14 through 16, let us hold fast our confession. Let us with confidence draw near. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 doesn't add any new commands. It's fleshing it out. It's telling us. Here's why. In fact, you can put it like this. Chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 tell us what we are to do and a little bit of why. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, tell us why we are to do. Why should you hold fast to the confession? Why should you draw near with confidence to Jesus? Chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 is going to flesh this out for us in more detail. And do you understand the purpose here? We hear those words from last week, and sometimes our hearts say, yes, but, or no way. And chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 is saying, yes, way, and here's why. And so it unpacks for us. That's the first thing I want you to note, that it is an expansion and there are no new commands. And then secondly, this is probably a word that's unfamiliar to many of us, but we're going to define it. This section, chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, is what, what um, rhetoricians or, or students of, of, of literature call a chiasmus. And, and what that means is it's a portion of text that kind of works like a pendulum. Now, you know what a pendulum does, right? A pendulum goes one way in one direction, and then it retraces its steps in reverse order, right? We've all seen pendulums. This text is structured like a pendulum, and sometimes writers, both in the Bible and outside of Scripture, will write with that structure. They'll say A, B, C, and then they'll say C, B, A. And there's, there's examples of this throughout the Bible, some very simple ones. Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, Verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's a chiasmus. Sabbath, man, man, Sabbath. See? 
Elsewhere, Jesus says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Save, lose, lose, save. The same thing is going on here in just a little bit of more detail. What, how does it work here in our text? Well, there are, there are three steps and then three steps back. So in verse 1, in chapter 5, you see the writer talking about the high priest chosen from among men. That's high priest of the line of Aaron. So high priest, okay? Verses 2 through 3, the writer talks about the sympathy that those high priests had for the people they served. Then in, cha- in verse 4, he makes a point to say that those high priests didn't choose themselves, they were appointed by God. So that's our first three steps, right? Priest, sympathy, called by God. And now look at the, what, what the rest of this passage does. What does verses 5 and 6 do? They tell us that Jesus was called by God and appointed, and he quotes some passages from the Old Testament. Verses 7 and 8, it talks about the sympathy of Jesus, his compassion, the things he suffered. And then in verses 9 and 10, it talks about him being the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So this whole, this whole text is structured in that same way. Priest, sympathy, appointed. Appointed, sympathy, priest. Now, writers do this for rhetorical force. They do this for emphasis. And there are a couple things that we're going to need to notice. One of them we're going to punt for future sermons because it's going to come up again in, in major detail. And that is this mention of Melchizedek in verse 6 and in verse 10. Verse 6, he says, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 10, Jesus is designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We're going to unpack that. In fact, the writer himself unpacks that in a lot of detail in chapter 7. So we're not going to focus on that today. The thing we're going to focus on today is another thing that is emphasized, and that is number three, kids, on your outlines. This text especially emphasizes the importance of priestly sympathy, that the priests of God, those who serve as priests, must be sympathetic to those they serve. Now, two different kinds of sympathy in verses 2 and 3, look at this, it's talking about priests after the order of Aaron. The high priest after the order of Aaron can can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Why? Since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for the sins of the people. We talked about that last week. But what the writer here is emphasizing is the sympathy of the priest. As a fellow sinner, the high priest after the order of Aaron could deal gently with with other sinners because they themselves felt the same sort of weaknesses. Even in the Old Testament, it was important to God that the high priest be able to sympathize. Now, in verses 7 and 8, we're talking about the Lord Jesus, whom chapter 4 has already told us had no sin, and yet chapters, chapter 5, 7, and 8 tell us, yet he was sympathetic. Look at verses 7 and 8. In the days of his flesh... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. The picture that the writer is painting here, this is not an impassive, distant, uninvolved, robotic sort of Savior, is it? Somebody who suffered with loud cries and tears. He was sinless, sinless yet suffering. Suffering. 
sympathetic. And verse 7 really gives us sort of a special window into the sympathy of our Savior, a window into his inner life. In fact, many of the Psalms do the same things. If you read the Psalms through the gospel lens, you'll see many of the Psalms reveal to us the inner life of Jesus. These three things about the structure of the text, that it is an expansion upon the previous section, that it's working like a pendulum, and that it's especially emphasized to God that priests be able to sympathize. You might say, well, it's important to me. Fair enough. But why is it important to God? The text is emphasizing that this was an important thing. Why was it important to God that priests be able to sympathize? The answer might not be 100% straightforward. We know that Jesus had to be a man in order to save men and women. That's the law of substitution. We know that the priests had to foreshadow Christ. But why is it important to God that priests be able to deal gently, to sympathize? And then the second question, number five. Since Jesus is sinless, how can he truly get us? You ever asked yourself that question? And verses 7 and 8 are, are emphasizing that, that he really was with us. He really identified with us. He had no sin, verse 15 of chapter 4, and yet he was fully invested in saving us. He learned obedience through what he suffered. With loud cries and tears, he offered up prayers and supplications. And this is one of those places where I think the heart of man, even the heart of the believing Christian, has one of those really big yeah, but moments. I hear what you're saying, Pastor, but if Jesus never sinned, how could he really know what it's like to feel like a failure? How could he ever know what it's like to not measure up? If he was 100% perfect, how does he know what it feels like to be me who has never been perfect? Not even close. And if he doesn't know what that feels like, so our hearts say, can he really get me? Does he really sympathize with me? So those are the two questions that are coming out of this text. It's below the lay, as you pull back the layers, you see these questions. Why is it important to God that priests be able to sympathize? And since Jesus is sinless, how can he truly get us? And now let's seek to answer those questions. To answer the question, why is it important to God that priests be able to sympathize. Number six on your outlines, kids. Sympathy is essential because the gospel is grace. The gospel is grace. What is grace? Grace is God giving you and I the opposite of what we deserve. We deserve wrath. We deserve hell. But in Jesus, God promises us life and forgiveness. Grace is God giving us not what we earn, but the opposite of what we earn. Why does God do this? Because God desires to give us his own heart. What does the word sympathy, sympathize, mean? Well, we get our English word from the Greek word. And the Greek word sympathize, which was there in verse 15 of chapter 4 and fleshed out in this section, the word sympathize literally means to feel with, to feel along with. God saves us so that he can transform us. He saves us to give us his own heart. And what is that heart of God? It is the heart of love. Not love in the selfish, Western, sort of choose-your-own-adventure sense of love. No, not at all. 
Love is an outward-flowing self-sacrifice for the good of others according to God's standard of goodness. This is the goal of all that Jesus was doing with those loud cries and tears, with those prayers and supplications. He was suffering out of love, out of a desire, out of grace, out of sympathy for us. All the days of His flesh, as verse 7 points out to us. It is important to God that priests sympathize because the gospel is grace, and grace is fueled by sympathy, sympathy which flows out of love. And that has very important implications for us sitting or standing here today. How much you and I understand the gospel is directly linked to how much we understand grace. And how much we understand grace can be tested and known by how much we value sympathy. How much do you and I value the sympathy of Jesus? There's a really simple test. You want to know the answer? How much do you value sympathy? The question is, how much do you want to spread it? Because sympathy by its very nature is not self-centered. You can't say, I value sympathy just for me, but not for anybody else. The way you know how much you value sympathy is how much you want to spread it. By its very nature, it is outflowing, outgoing. Jesus' sympathy earned him a negative reputation in the eyes of some in the world in which he lived and walked. He was called what? A friend of what? A friend of sinners. He, owned, he earned some notoriety in the eyes of some as a friend of sinners. Does that mean he endorsed sin? Never. Never. But he always sympathized before he criticized. He dealt gently with the ignorant with the wayward. What the priests were supposed to do was a foreshadowing of what he actually did. Think of all the examples. There are so many, but just to name a couple. The woman at the well in John chapter 4. Did Jesus finally confront her about her sin? He did, but in a way that was gentle, in a way that was sympathetic, and invited her to repentance rather than pushed her away with a negative attitude. When Jesus met Zacchaeus, that wee little man, did he, conf- did he confront his sin? Yes, but with sympathy. Zacchaeus was drawn to repentance. Those tax collectors and sinners that our elder read in the first scripture reading in Luke chapter 5, there was something in the personality of Christ that attracted lost and broken and wayward people. And it wasn't that he endorsed or was okay with sin. He remained sinless. He confronted sinful behavior, but always with sympathy. And in fact, the writer to Hebrews tells us he offered up prayers and supplications, cries and tears for the lost. And here is the question for us. Is Covenant Presbyterian Church in danger of receiving the same reputation? Are we in danger of being called friends of sinners? When you think about the lost in our society, do you think about them with tears or with sneers? I recently watched a movie that one of you recommended to me, and I won't say the name of the movie out from the pulpit. You can ask me later if you want. But it was an interesting movie, and there's there's certain things in there that make me raise my eyebrows. But this was a movie about a time and a place when a bunch of really strange and weird people started getting converted and coming to Jesus. And they started coming into a church, a very traditional, a very 
conservative, very Bible-believing church, a church not unlike ours. And do you know what happened? The church divided. And people left the church because they didn't want to sit next to the weirdos and the dirty, unwashed people. I just wonder, friends, would we do better? Would we really do better? Do you want, do you want the weirdest, and in our day and age we say, do you want the weirdest and the wokest people you can imagine coming into church and sitting next to you? Would you want that? Would you? Are you praying for it? If you want it, you should pray for it. How many of us this week actually prayed, God, please please bring the weirdest and the wokest to Covenant Presbyterian Church on Sunday so that they can hear about Jesus and come to life? Do you want that? Are we praying for it? Do we have sympathy for the lost? My friends, if we have no sympathy, then we don't know Christ because Christ is sympathy. Never endorsing sin, but sympathizing before he criticizes. Never excusing our sin, never lying about it, but willing to die for it. We struggle with that, and I'm guessing that most of us do. I myself was very convicted in thinking about these things this week. What is our answer? Our answer in the good news is that if we come to Jesus, we will always find sympathy. First for ourselves, even for our failure to be sympathetic people, and then not just for us, but in us, growing, so that we will have sympathy toward those who are lost. And this is the answer to our second question. If Jesus is sinless, and he was, how can he truly get us? That was our question at number five. Number seven, the answer is, Jesus gets us because he suffered everything for us. Everything. Verse 7 says, in the days of his flesh. And it's very important that we read closely. It doesn't say, it does not say just in the day of his cross, but it says in the days of his flesh. Why does the writer put it like that? Because he's pointing out to us that Christ's suffering did not begin at the crucifixion. It culminated at the crucifixion, but it did not begin at the crucifixion. Jesus took his first breath of suffering when he took his first breath. He was born where? In a manger. What is a manger? What does a barn smell like? Some of you have barns. You know. Well, they smell like dust, and they smell like decay. Those smells of dust and decay are the smells of death. Jesus took his first breath of death when he took his first breath of life. And it's not like his life got any easier. The writer is emphasizing that his life was a life of cries and tears. He suffered all the hunger, all the fatigue, all the emotional pain. And there were no shortcuts for him. In fact, verse 8 underlines this. Although he was God's son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. What does that mean? That means as he grew, his capacity and his field of obedience grew through suffering. One commentator put it very well. He said that Jesus learned what obedience to God as a man looked like, quote, in the anvil of human experience. What is an anvil? Have any of you ever done like one of those blacksmithing workshops? I never did. I just think it would be so cool. But an anvil is, is the really hard piece of metal that you put the hot metal on and you just pound the snot out of it to put it into the right shape. That's what happened to Jesus. In fact, the end of verse 7 says he was heard because of his reverence. 
And that reminds us something that we were talking about in Sunday school this morning, that Jesus lived by faith amid all the weakness, all the danger, all the betrayal that he experienced. The road to the cross began in the manger. The road to Easter began at Christmas. He lived his whole life under the shadow of the cross. Now, one of the questions we raised earlier was, well, does Jesus really know, like, know what it's like to feel shame and failure? And the surprising answer is yes. Not his failure, not his shame, but ours. When he was on the cross, when he was dying, God heaped upon him all of your shame, all of your failures, all of my sins. All of our guilt and shame were loaded on him, and yes, he felt that too. Not because he had his own sin, but because he had our sin. All of our guilt and shame was loaded on our Lord. He gets you because he got yours. All your mess, all your shame, all your guilt. There is nothing in your experience that is foreign to Jesus. And because of that, there is nothing in your experience that needs to be held back from Jesus. That's why the writer says, hold fast the promises. Draw near with confidence. This is the kind of Savior you had, bigger and better than you could ever imagine. When you have such a Jesus, there's no more yes but. But as the Scripture says, Jesus whom we proclaim is not yes and no, but in Him it is always yes. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Him. And with this kind of Jesus, there's no, no way. He doesn't get it. He gets it because he got it already. And so what do we need to do today? If we're in that place where we say, yeah, but, or I'm still not sure. My friends, you need to just memorize verses 7 and 8 of Hebrews chapter 5, if this is your struggle. You need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I feel guilt and shame. I struggle maybe to believe that you felt it too, but the Bible says you felt my shame at the cross. You took my guilt. You know what it's like to feel like a failure, not because you ever failed, but because you felt my failure. And so, Jesus, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Please pour into my heart your confidence and your promises. Number eight, kids, and this is where we'll end. Jesus is better than we imagine because his sympathy runs as deep as his suffering all the way to the bottom, and his grace flows as wide as his sympathy as wide as the promises of the gospel. Amen. Let us pray. Our God, we are thankful to you for all of your promises. We thank you that they are yes and amen in Jesus. We thank you that you are a sympathetic God. And we confess to you that so often we are not sympathetic Christians. We want your sympathy for ourselves but we are so slow to pour your sympathy into the lives of others. Our God, forgive us, please. And please open wide our hearts. As we look at the sympathy of Jesus, please, may that sympathy with all of its outflowing power and all of its graciousness, may it widen our hearts. And may we go out today more sympathetic, more representative of Christ. And please, do bring to this church the weirdest, the wokest, and all who are in between, 
that they may come to know with us this Jesus in whom all the promises of forgiveness, life, and transformation are true and amen. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.